Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Uh, my name is Glenn. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great uh, joy of sharing with you God's Word uh, this morning. So if you do have a copy of God's Word, make sure you are open to the book of Judges, chapter 19. How many of you are grandparents? What is wrong with you? What, uh, have you grandparents, for those of you that are parents, grandparents are kind of a problem, Amen. Amen. See, we've got it over here. Yeah. So here's, I, I remember we, uh, my wife and I, we, uh, it was years back when we were living in Massachusetts, we needed to take a trip, uh, to go to a friend's wedding and, uh, we needed somebody to come watch the kids. So we had some grandparents, our kids' grandparents come out to watch them. And so we leave, go away, come back after a few days, get back, walk in the front door. And it looks like a scene from Lord of the Flies. As the entire house is covered with toys. The, the kids have been doing whatever they wanted. And grandma and grandpa are just like, all right, we're tapping out. We'll see you later. And they take off in the car. Right? Grandparents, they just have this tendency to let your kids do whatever they want. Right? Has anybody else experienced this? Right? So they can, they can have whatever candy or food that they want to have when they're at grandma's house. And I, I remember having a discussion at one point. So it was like, oh, uh, can you stop, you know, junior from writing on the wall? And grandma's just like, oh, it's, but it's so cute. You know, they're, they're destroying your wallpaper. No, but it's, it's, it's adorable. Right? They, they, you, they load your kids up with sugar. They buy them toys they don't deserve because they're horrible children. And they do all these things, right? And they basically kids can do whatever they want. When they're at grandma and grandpa's house, right? It, is that true? Have you guys seen some, at least a little bit of that? Now the grandparents are kind of quiet, but they know it's true. They know I'm talking right at them. Yeah, it, that happens. So it's, it, kids sometimes get to get away with almost murder sometimes when they're with grandma and grandpa. Now, spoiling your grandkids, it's a rite of passage, right? I, I can't wait to do it myself. Just, I think it's payback, but I, I know just when I see my parents spoil my kids, I'm like, where were you when I was a kid? Right. You did not do this sort of thing with me. You were one of the, you, you were essentially this dictator just, just telling me everything. And now all of a sudden you want to load my kids up with all these toys and candy. It's one thing to be able to spoil your grand, grandkids. Uh, you know, that's one thing. But what happens when an entire society decides to live like that, that we can do whatever we want? We can live however we please. Well, our passage today shows exactly what that looks like when God's people decide to do whatever they want in their own eyes. Whatever they think is right, whatever they think is best, they start living that way. And this chapter we're going to look at today shows us what that results in, living in that sort of mindset. I do want to throw out a quick um, warning. I think normally I try to keep my sermons at the PG level. And some of you are like, really? That's PG? Um, no, th this, this passage in Judges is probably, it's definitely the most disturbing part of this book. It's probably the most disturbing part of the Bible. So I'm just going to throw that out there. There's going to be some content in here that is, is disturbing and it's supposed to be. So if you've got your kids still, uh, nursery through fifth grade, you can send them over if you want to, but I'm just throwing that out. You can't get mad at me, okay, because I'm just going to be looking at God's Word today. 
All right, so we're going to be looking at this morning. We are in the book of Judges, which has been chronicling the uh, story between the times where God's people came into the promised land to conquer it, and then before they had kings that started being raised up ruling over them. It's a very chaotic time, and it's a very, it's a time filled with the disobedience of God's people and God's persistence in continuing to deliver them again and again and again. And as the book close, closes, it's essentially, the, the author is wanting to show us, guys, this is, it's really got this bad among God's people. We're supposed to be shocked at what we read today, and I think we will find that. So with that, we're going to start chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Just a quick time out. That very first phrase, very first phrase, in those days when there was no king in Israel, points back to an earlier phrase that's been reoccurring throughout the latter part of this book that basically says, in those days when there's no king in Israel, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So it's supposed to help us think this is life. What we're about to read is what it looks like when everyone's doing whatever they want to do, when there is no king in Israel. But the reality is Israel did have a king at this point. And who is it? It's God. He's king. But they're living as though he's not king, and they're doing what is right in their eyes, not what is right in his eyes. So, in this time period where everybody's doing whatever they want to do, there was a Levite. And he was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, a concubine, or a Levite, first of all, is supposed to be, uh, is the tribe God has set aside for service at the temple. They were really supposed to be the spiritual representatives uh, in Israel. And this Levite, instead of focusing and being centered on worship, uh, the center of worship in Israel, he instead, he's kind of a, a traveling guy just doing his own thing, just kind of going wherever he wants to go. And as he's doing that, he takes for himself a concubine. A concubine is essentially was a sex slave that you that they were kind of like a second class wife. So they weren't allowed to go do their own thing, but that you, you would, you would hire one or you would marry one, uh, if things were getting stale with your, with your original marriage. And so people would, these men would accumulate for themselves additional wives. And that's what this Levite's doing. He's got this concubine that he has brought into his family. Again, this is not the way God has designed it. So he has this concubine in Bethlehem. In verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. Then her husband arose, went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant, a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. So, the man loses his wife, his concubine. She goes on her way. She's mad. Who knows what it was? They doesn't tell us what they were fighting about. But she says, I'm done. I'm out of here. She leaves. And it seems like he doesn't really notice for four months. And he's like, okay, fine. Ah, I guess I better go get her, right? So he loads up all of his stuff. And, and it's at first, it's kind of noble because he's not coming in domineering and demanding. He's going to be kind of nice to try to sweet talk her to get him come back. So he travels, gets loaded up to come and get her, shows up. She's 
finds him, comes, brings uh, the Levite into her father's house where she'd been staying. And verse four says, his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread and after you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him again until he spent the night again. And there on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart. Wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine, his servant, rose up to depart, the father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, behold, now the day's waned. It's towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws near to its close. Lodge here. Let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. So here's what's happening. This, this father-in-law wants to present himself as the most hospitable person on the planet, basically. So they've, he, he's brought this man into his home, and he's wanted to party with him for three days. And every single day, the, man, the Levite gets up to go. The father-in-law says, hey, you can't leave on an empty stomach. Why don't you hang out just a little bit longer, and then you can go. They would eat. They would drink. The day would get long. and say, oh, you might as well just spend the night. You can go again in the morning. And he keeps doing this. It, this culture valued hospitality uh, tremendously. That it was like it, it, for you to be inhospitable was a huge mark against you, against your honor. And so this man is wanting to go above and beyond to keep the Levite there, to, to continue to serve him in this capacity until at one point on the fifth day of partying, it's the end of the day, and the guy's like, bro, I can't keep doing this. So look, look what happens. Instead of leaving early in the morning, they're going to end up leaving later in the day. Verse 10, but the man would not spend the night. He rose up, and he departed, and he arrived opposite of Jabus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let's turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to this city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. All right, so essentially what's happening is they leave a little bit late in the day rather than getting an early start to kind of get as far as they could. They're not able to get that far away from Bethlehem. And so the closest city they get to that they're coming up to is what would eventually be Jerusalem. It's not that far away from Bethlehem. And so the servant of this Levite, they're riding along. He says, hey, the, the, this city is up here on the, on the side. Let's stop here because it's already starting to get late. And the Levite says, there is no way we're staying there because at this point in history, Israelites don't live there. The Jebusites live there. They are not a part of the people of God. And so essentially the Levite's saying, we don't want to stay at a city of foreigners because they will treat us harshly. They will treat us poorly. They will take advantage of us. They will harm us. No, where should we stay? With fellow Israelites. That's where we're going to be safe. And you can almost see what's being set up, can't you? We're going to find that the Israelite city is not going to treat them well. So they're going to move on. Verse uh, 13. 
He said to his young man, come, let's draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on. They went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, right? This is in the, this is an Israelite city of the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, in this culture, as visitors came into your town, again, hospitality is a huge thing. It's a major thing in this culture. You would take visitors into your home, right? They didn't go looking for a Motel 6 or anything like that, but people would bring them into their own homes to provide for them. And so that's what he's expecting. He's going to roll into town and someone's going to say, oh, we got a traveler. Why don't you come in into my house and hang out with us? We'll, we'll get you on your way in the morning. That was the way everyone operated. This is a huge indictment against the city. That a fellow Israel, a Levite who was is supposed to be the spiritual person, would come into a city and everyone would turn a blind eye and just allow this man to essentially sleep out in the open in the city square. No one would take them in. But, verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. So this guy who's not even from there, he's just passing through. He's got his own spot that's there. He's coming into town late at night as he sees the Levite and everybody else. Verse 17, he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, hey, where are you going and where do you come from? And the Levite said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one's taken me into his house. We've got straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant and young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. In other words, bro, we're just looking for a room. I've already got all the stuff that I need if you've got a place that we can crash. The old man said, verse 20, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So we brought him into his house, gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Okay, so good so far, right? So finally, another guy, he's not a local. He ends up taking the Levite and his servant and his concubine and their donkeys and everything in to care for them that night. But he says this phrase. It's really interesting. He says, make sure you don't spend the night where? In the city square. Okay, now... This is likely a city that's got walls and defenses from the outside. So it seems strange that it would be dangerous to be at the city square of your own people, right? The people of Israel, and they're walled off and everything else. It seems strange that this man would say, just make sure you're not going to sleep out here. Something's going on, and we're going to find out what that is in a second. Look at verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold... The men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man's come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous 
thing. All right, PG-13 time. So they're hanging out, having a good time, partying at this man's house, and all of a sudden, there's this pounding that's taking place on their door, and they all of a sudden, they hear men outside shouting, saying, hey, we saw that that's, this guy came into your town tonight, or into your house tonight. Bring him out of the house. We want to have an orgy with him. We want to, that's when, when they say, we want to know him. They're saying, we want to have sex with this man. Bring him out to us so that we may do this. And the man responds, says, oh, no, no. I tell you what, I've got, instead, I'll give you my daughter and I'll give you his wife. And do to them whatever you want to do. Just leave this guy alone. That's kind of weird, right? That's kind of really messed up. You see, again, Whose honor is affected if uh, a person in your care that you're showing hospitality to is harmed? This old man would lose honor standing. And, but you can see already, like, doesn't he lose honor if the concubine gets done or they do whatever they want with her or his daughter? Isn't that lacking honor to do something like that? Again, the culture here is so messed up that women don't have any value or place here. So it's kind of like, whatever, do it to them whatever you want. This story should sound very familiar. Some of you, does it seem like you've heard this before, only a little different? What story is it? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, the language that's used in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the language that's used here, I think like one-fourth of the total of the words used are exactly the same. The author is intentionally trying to point, the author wants you to think of Sodom and Gomorrah when you hear this story. Because in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got uh, these two angels, these two messengers come into these cities, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, is there. He's, he's got his own house. The angels come in. They stay with Lot. Same thing. They're in the open city by themselves. No one's taking them in. Lot says, come stay in my house. And the town surrounds the house, beating on the door, because they also want to rape the angels that have gone in. And the man... Lot at the time offers up his daughters. Same kind of thing. Hey, take a, it's the same story, except in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, as the men are trying to beat down the, the door, the angels are angels and they strike everybody blind and they get them out of the city and destroy the city. There will be no angelic deliverance in our story today. You see, the author wants us to see that the people of Israel at this point, as they are doing whatever they want to do, as they are doing what is right in their own eyes, as they are neglecting to believe that God is their king, they end up becoming as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. They end up becoming as bad as the worst of the world outside of God's people. When God's people do what's right in their own eyes, they look like the world. And they look like what the, the worst that the world has to offer. So they bang on the door. Bring this man out. He says, I will send you my daughters. But no, there's no angelic deliverance. Let's pick back up. Verse 25. But the man would not listen to him. So the man, and here I think he's talking about the Levite. The man seized his concubine, and he made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, 
they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. No deliverance. And instead, the Levite, to save his own skin and the honor of his host, he grabs this concubine, this second-class wife, chucks her out the door. And this mob gang rapes this woman and beats her and abuses her the entire night. At morning, they finally let her go. She crawls back and falls down at the door to this house. And listen how callous this man is. Look at this next verse, verse 27. Her master rose up in the morning, right? Talking about the Levite. And when he opened the doors of the house and went to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on her threshold. It's like she crawled her way back, reaching for the door, couldn't do it, and just collapsed right at the threshold of the house. And he said to her, verse 28, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. What happened? She died. The injuries and trauma she sustained in the evening ended up killing her as she lies there crumpled at the door. And all he says to her, get up, let's go. So he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. It's pretty bad, right? It gets worse. Look at verse 29. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or have been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. This man, this callous man takes this woman's body and cuts her up into pieces and FedExes her essentially to all the corners of Israel as a kind of a, a rallying cry. Look at what's happened to me. And people see it and they're just like, what the heck is going on here? Like they're both shocked, I think, by obviously what happened to this woman initially that killed her. But they're also shocked by this gruesome nature of receiving a body part in the mail as a summoning to bring, uh, to, to muster the troops and to come do something about it. And it's interesting, the, the, as the people who say this thing, it's like the author wants us to wrestle ourselves with the gruesome nature of this, with the, the shock of what is taking place amidst God's people. He says, as you consider, he says, consider what's happening here, take counsel and speak. In other words, he's wanting us, as we read the story, what would, what are we going to do when this kind of depravity takes place in our midst? What is our response to people doing whatever they want, whatever's right in their own eyes? How would, how would we act? The rest of this story, uh, Pastor Carl uh, will cover next week and kind of the response of God's, uh, the rest of Israel to what takes place. But what do we do with this, this passage? What is this here for? What, how, how are we supposed to apply and utilize what's taking place here? Well, I think like the people of Israel, there have been times throughout church history 
where Christians, people who call themselves followers of Jesus, have done horrible things. Right? And we see that even early on. Christians doing horrible things. Christians, churches who are doing things that, that cause them, you look at them and say, you look no different than the world in which you live. How does that happen? It happens because we do what is right in our own eyes. It's the same of the modern church today too, right? We hear stories of pastoral affairs, right? Or affairs in the midst of the body of Christ, people cheating on one another. We see stories of child abuse within the church. And we see often churches, instead of going at the root and trying to, to bring justice, what do churches often in those cases do? Cover up, protect, be defensive. We see churches that empower prideful, arrogant, domineering men into leadership positions because they're super gifted. And then they end up tearing down and destroying the church and we get to hear podcasts about it. The same kind of thing, it continues to happen. How do these horrible things happen? How do Christians, how do churches do these kind of things to where they look no different than what you would see in corporate America, right? The same sort of abuse scandals and affairs and different things happen in the, in the world. And the church at times reflects that. Why? Because we choose to do what is right, what is good in our own eyes. Because we act as though there is no king in Israel. There is no king over the church. Well, is there a king over the church? Yeah. And what's his name? Jesus. Jesus is king over the church. Jesus is king over Sierra Bible Church. And our king has communicated to us how we are to live, how we are to carry ourselves as followers of Jesus. This morning, I could spend the next 10, 15 hours talking about the ways in which I, the which way you, the which the way we, and the which the way the church at large do what is right in our own eyes. We all do this. And I could, I could spend 10 hours talking about that. I'm not going to because the Super Bowl is coming. So instead, I'm going to just talk about two. Two different ideas. And the main reason I want to talk about these two different things in which some of us struggle with this kind of doing what's right in our own eyes is, number one, I want us to really consider, are we doing this? Can we, can we, we need to repent and, and live differently. But number two, I kind of want to give you a template that you can this week begin to run your own life through and say, okay, what areas of my life am I doing what is right in my own eyes rather than following King Jesus and doing what he calls me to do? So let's talk about these two areas. I plan on everyone being very uncomfortable and I'm okay with that. Area number one. So the church is under a tremendous amount of pressure today to adopt, to um, accept, to embrace the LGBT agenda. And many Christians and many churches, and especially younger Christians, have been willing to compromise and willing to jettison what the Bible teaches on sexuality and gender in order to fit in, in order to be accepted at work or at school, in order to be accepted by the culture at large, because it's getting more and more costly to take a biblical stand on issues of sexuality 
and gender. And so many Christians, particularly younger Christians, are compromising. And not necessarily saying uh, it's okay, but, but kind of downplaying these sort of issues. But the Bible has a whole lot to say about gender and sexuality, right? God created us human beings in his image as male and female. From the very beginning, God's intent for us was to be identified as, as men, as women. And it's not an interchangeable thing that we can just decide what we want to do. In fact, uh, the scriptures even condemn things like transgenderism, this kind of blurring of the lines between the genders. There's something special about being a man. There's something special about being a woman, and the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that marriage is designed to be this, this beautiful portrait of God's relationship with his own people between a husband and a wife. And that's not, and you lose that with two husbands and two wives. See, God has designed our bodies, our genders, marriage for, with a specific purpose. And the issue with the LGBT agenda is, is it's essentially that, that entire system of belief is a way of raising your fist to God and saying, you cannot tell us what to do. We want to live as we please. I get to define what it means to be a man or a woman. I get to define what marriage is. I get to define who I marry. I get to define who and what I love and how I love it. But the Bible teaches a very different story. And I believe God is calling us not to do what is right in our own eyes, but he's calling us to stand firm on his truth and what he's revealed as the right way to live, as the right way to honor him through our sexuality, through our genders. And that is not a popular message. Younger Christians in this room, especially teenagers, college age, this is going to be the defining issue for your generation. Can you stand for what God's word says or will you bow to what the culture says? I guarantee you it will cost you. And the right thing in your eyes might be, well, I just want to keep a low profile. But that won't be the right answer. That won't be following Jesus as king. Now, does that mean we're supposed to attend protests of uh, those sort of things? Does that mean we're supposed to be harsh or not befriend? No, of course not. In fact, I think the very best thing for the LGBT community would be that each one of them in that community know and have Christians who deeply love them, who adore them, who sacrifice for them. Because our culture's understanding of love means you have to agree with all of my decisions. But we need to show a kind of love that loves in spite of a disagreement, in spite of a disagreement of decisions and choices. What a different world this would be if followers of Jesus were willing to love and sacrifice for people that disagree on all these issues. And so, especially you young Christians, we need to figure out how to love well in a way that isn't compromising the truth of God's word. We cannot live and do what is right in our own eyes. That's one issue. Let's talk about another one. Uh, in our culture today, uh, in light of the last two years, there has been a very uh, big concern with government overreach, uh, with personal liberty and personal freedom, right? Especially in light of all the different mandates and different things they've brought out related to COVID, whether it be masks or social distancing or who can meet and when they can meet and where they can meet and how many of them can meet and all those kinds of things. 
And so the response of much of, or many Christians and many churches has been an outright defiance against uh, some of these mandates and some of these instructions that we have received from governing authorities. But the Bible teaches that God is king overall and our ultimate authority. Amen? He is, he is our king. He is the ruler of all. But the Bible also teaches that he has put lesser authorities into our lives that we are to submit to. Whether it be government, whether it be parents, whether it be husbands and wives, whether it be church leadership, whether it be bosses, there are lesser authorities under God's authority that we are called as followers of Jesus to obey, to follow. And I'll be honest with you, this last, the last couple of years, I've been incredibly frustrated with the governing authorities and how inconsistent they are. I've been incredibly frustrated with uh, the lack of concern, I think, for the community and household of faith that exists in so much of the country. I've been frustrated with uh, the hypocrisy you see as they're selling us one thing and then they do something else. And I've been frustrated. And I've disagreed with many decisions, probably most decisions that the government's made over the last couple of years. But if we disagree with those who are over us, does that give us permission to disregard the instructions of those over us? It doesn't. In fact, the command to submit to authorities over us aren't there for the times we agree with them. You don't need to be told submit when you agree with somebody because you're like, well, I was going to do that anyways. We need instructions submit when? When we disagree. When we think they're in the wrong, right? And so I don't need to be told, hey, Glenn, you're not allowed to murder people because I really don't feel like that's the thing I want to do. And some of you are like, well, thank God for that. But you know what I would like to do? I'd like to drive 150 miles down 395 to get to Southern California to visit family a lot quicker. But the government says, Glenn, you can't do that. And so I disagree, but guess what? What do I got to do? I got to do what they tell me to do. Not because I think they're right. Well, they're probably right because I'll probably kill myself. But see, we don't do what those in authority over us t uh, tell us to do because they're right, because, they're, uh, uh, because we agree. We do it because they're an authority God's placed over us, right? God has, God has put them over us to say, you have to do this. Now, there are times where they tell us to do one thing and God's told us to do something else. And I think we're going to get close to that, especially in light of the first issue I talked about. I think it's going to get harder and harder as followers of Jesus in this country to honor Jesus without significant consequences as the, we deal with issues on transgenderism and, and homosexuality. I mean, we're going to start to face a lot of consequences as churches. We obey Jesus. We're going to have to say we obey Jesus. We don't obey the law on this point. And that's okay. God's the higher authority. But in the meantime, we have to do what they ask us to do, whether we like it or not, so long as it doesn't call, cause us to transgress God's word. Now, thank, praise be to God, I think we're on the back end of a lot of this stuff that, uh, as far as all these protocols and things like that. I'll knock on wood right now for us, but uh, I think we're on the back end of this. But let's say a year from now, they come out and they say, hey, guys, you know what? We've decided you, you, everybody needs to wear purple beanies moving forward. Well, as the church, what are we supposed to do? That would be stupid law, right? We'd say, this is dumb. We don't like this. But if we're followers of Jesus, he's told us, respect the governing authorities. What are we supposed to do? We got to do what they say. 
And we can work to try to help those laws change. Fortunately, we live in a country where we have the power to do that. God is calling us not to do what is right in our own eyes, but to do what's right in his. Because what happens when we do what's right in our own eyes? When we embrace an LGBT agenda, we begin to look like the world that's promoting that agenda. What happens when we dismiss authorities that are over us? We start to look like the world that's rebellious and dismisses authority over them. They reject God's authority. And so church, we need to consider, and those are just two areas. We need to consider how are we operating as individual Christians, as a church? How are we operating by doing what is right in our own eyes rather than doing what's right in God's eyes? What our king has said, we have a king on the throne. Here's the reality. We have all messes up royally, everything, right? We are constantly doing what is right in our own eyes. What is the solution? Well, God sent the solution. That's why Jesus came in the first place, because we had a commitment to do whatever we want to do. In fact, back in the garden, as Eve takes that fruit, she the, the text tells us she saw that it was pleasing. It was pleasing to her eyes. She determined, this is what's good for me, not what God has said. And she took a bite. And from that point, all of history has been cast into chaos. And yet God in his love and his mercy sends his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty that we have earned for doing what's right in our own eyes. For doing the kinds of things that result in the chaotic culture we see in Judges 19. Jesus came and died for all of that and paid the penalty for all of that. And in our gratitude for that sacrifice, let's commit to live as though Jesus is king. We have a king over the church. We have a king, church. And he's called us to live a certain way. He's called us to be different. Because when we start looking like the world, we lose our saltiness. We lose the light that we're called to be. When we look like them, we lack the power to be able to share the gospel with them. So let's commit, church to repent of doing things according to what's right in our own eyes, but committing to do what is right in God's eyes. Friend, you might be here. Your entire life has been defined by doing what you think is best for yourself. And what has that got you? You recognize that's brought you pain, that's brought you heartache and brokenness. There's, there's a better way. There's a better king for you. And his name is Jesus. If you would like to learn how to follow Jesus, how to trust him, how to know him, and begin to live a life better than the one you've been living. Talk with myself. Talk with one of the shepherds that you saw up here. Talk, talk with one of our pastors. We would love to share how you can start following Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for hard texts like Judges 19. That show us the futility of living and doing what is right in your own eyes. God, help us as your people to do what is right in your eyes, not our own. And God, forgive us for the myriad of ways in which I fail to do that, in which we fail to do that. God, we know the cross is available for all of our shortcomings and failures. And you are a God who is so kind to us. You are a God who continues. God, you are a person. You are, you are the God who continues to love Israel after Judges 19. And you are the God who continues to love us as the church.
God, help us to be salt and light in this culture that desperately needs it. Help us to extend love and grace and patience at all times towards each other and towards those in our community that all might live as with Jesus as king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.